Rows of records flashed past Julius Rosenberg as he made his way deeper and deeper into the Army Signal Corps building. He checked his watch, trying to remain as casual as possible. That was the secret to being covert, remain perfectly normal. He pulled a paper-bound file from the shelf and unwrapped it. Inside was a manual, dictating the full schematics on the U.S. jet fighter, the P-80 Shooting Star. This plane was the choice fighter for the American forces, and with any luck, the Soviets would know every system on board. Just then, a door slammed at the other end of the room. Someone was there. Julius didn't have much time. He pushed back his horned-rimmed glasses and removed a small Leica camera from his suitcase. He snapped pictures of the file one page at a time. Faster, faster, faster. Then, as the footsteps turned the corner, he tied the string around the file and placed it back on the shelf. It was just a record assistant restocking books. Julius nodded and continued on his way. That night, Julius called his handler on the phone. It rang twice, and he hung up. That was all his handler needed to know. Julius had information. This is Espionage, a new ParCast original exploring the missions behind the world's most incredible spies and what brought their covert operations into the public eye. I'm your host, Carter Roy. Throughout this show, we'll explore real-world spy tactics required to impersonate, exploit, and infiltrate the most confidential places in the world. You can listen to all of ParCast shows on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes come out on Fridays. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This is our first episode on the world's most infamous atomic spies, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. In the mid-1940s, 27-year-old Julius and his 30-year-old wife Ethel orchestrated a top-secret operation to steal information about the atomic bomb from right under the FBI's nose. This week, we'll explore how two American communists turned from activists into international spies. Next week, we'll follow the Rosenbergs as their operation comes crashing to the ground. Julius Rosenberg had lived on the Lower East Side since he was a child. He knew it better than anyone. The noise, the heat, the discrimination. The big businesses flourishing while hard-working families starved. New York City was proof that American capitalism had failed. Everyone said America was the land of opportunity. Well, that's why Julius's parents had moved there from the Russian Empire. But the reality of life during the Great Depression, especially for working-class Jewish immigrants like the Rosenbergs, was far from utopian. All Julius saw was injustice and inequality. While Julius was a student at the City College of New York in the mid-1930s, he worked part-time at a pharmacy in Harlem. One night, a black man was hit by a bus on the street just outside the shop. They brought him inside 
but in the hour it took for an ambulance to arrive, the man bled to death. If that was the best America could offer, Julius wanted to see his other options. Like many young people in the 1930s, Julius saw a more promising vision of society in his family's homeland, Russia, at the time serving as the center of power within the Soviet Union. Under communism, equality was a promise, not a dream. The poor would be lifted up and the rich would be held in check. By the time he was 18 in 1936, Julius was a rising leader in CCNY's Young Communist League. The Communist Party USA was enjoying a moment in the spotlight in the 1930s. Membership rose from 7,500 to 55,000 over the course of the decade. This was partially due to disillusionment with capitalism during the Great Depression and also in response to the rise of fascism in Spain and Germany. In the days before McCarthyism, communism wasn't a dirty word, and the party attracted droves of supporters by fighting for labor laws, women's rights, and racial equality. At a political rally in the winter of 1936, Julius met another freethinker, Ethel Greenglass. Ethel was a 21-year-old aspiring actress and out-of-work secretary. She'd been fired from her clerical job the previous year for organizing a workers' strike, but it didn't scare her away from activism. In fact, it only made her more fiery. Julius and Ethel were both true believers in the communist cause, and politics became the passion that bound them together. Julius was bold and fearless. At one point in college, he led a raid on a German ocean liner, the SS Bremen, and tore the Nazi flag from its jackstaff. Ethel, on the other hand, was cautious and practical. Julius could never be bothered to do his homework, so Ethel routinely wrote his college papers for him, typing them up on her secondhand Remington typewriter. If it wasn't for Ethel's diligence, Julius may not have finished college at all, but he finally graduated with a BS in electrical engineering in February 1939, one semester late, and ranked 79th out of 85 in his class. The next year, Julius got a job as a civilian engineer inspecting equipment for the Army Signal Corps in New York. For most electrical engineers, this would have been a boring entry-level job. But Julius saw the hidden value. This position offered him access to America's advanced radio, radar, and sonar technologies, the foundation of the U.S. military's communication systems. Just a year later, in December 1941, the United States entered World War II. The Soviet Union and America were allies in the war, but they were still ideological opposites. As two of the world's rising superpowers, neither country wanted to see the other surpass them in technological advances. And as two of America's rising communists, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, knew which side they wanted to come out on top when the war was finally over. Throughout the early 1940s, Julius snuck as much information as he could into his briefcase. Circuit board diagrams, company messages. He didn't know exactly what Russia needed, so he grabbed a little bit of everything. 
With Ethel's knowledge and support, he hid the stolen documents on their apartment's bookshelf, waiting for an opportunity to pass it along into the right hands. To do that, the Rosenbergs needed to contact the NKVD, the Soviet Union's interior ministry and secret police agency, which would later become known as the KGB. But how do two 20-something New Yorkers get connected with a foreign country's top-secret intelligence agency? In 1941, Julius and Ethel began feeling out potential contacts in the Young Communist League and the Communist Party USA. They attended weekly party meetings across New York City, and at every meeting, Julius made it a point to mention in casual conversation that he happened to possess sensitive information that could undermine the American military. After almost two years, this method failed to produce any results. The NKVD very rarely touched base with the Communist Party USA, which was basically an intellectual organization run by politically powerless left-wing academics. A proper 1940s Soviet agent focused their time on Ivy League universities. This was where the next generation of American statesmen could be found. By the end of 1942, when Julius was 24 and Ethel was 27, they had a new plan. If the NKVD didn't want them, they would build their own spy network. Many of Julius's friends from college had found jobs in engineering facilities where top-secret U.S. military equipment was churned out on conveyor belts every day. He started by reaching out to his old friend Joel Barr, who also worked with him at the Army Signal Corps. His friend Morton Sobel was at General Electric. William Pearl was at the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, the predecessor to NASA. Other friends ended up at Bell Laboratories, Western Electric, and a chemical engineering firm called the Kellex Corporation. And Julius's sales pitch was always the same. According to his friend Max Elitcher, Julius would tell each potential recruit that many of their friends were already giving secrets to Russia and that together they could bring about a change in the status quo. For most, this was all it took. By April 1942, Julius and Ethel had amassed half a dozen American engineers who were loyal to the communist cause. Together, they gathered information about sonar, military radio, radar, and cutting-edge avionics from their corporate day jobs. A few months later, their work finally caught the kind of attention Julius had been waiting for. In June 1942, Julius was making his rounds at a Communist Party meeting when he was introduced to a man named Bernard Schuster. Schuster wasn't an NKVD agent himself, but he told Julius he knew an agent by the name of Jacob Golos, codename Sound. Jacob Golos was a rising star in the NKVD. He was a Russian immigrant who had made a name for himself in the 1920s by stealing American passports, which the Soviet Union used to forge American travel documents with extreme accuracy. By 1930, Golos was recruited by the Soviet Union as a bona fide spy. His job was to recruit American intelligence sources, 
aka assets, who are willing to sell secrets to the Soviets. Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were exactly the kind of people Golos was looking for. Schuster saw Julius's value to Russia and told him that he would contact Golos later that month. By the end of the summer, Bernard Schuster told Julius that Golos would meet him in the Upper East Side within the following month, August 1942. Julius could feel the August heat pressing down on him. His glasses slid down the sweaty bridge of his nose. Finally, a car stopped along the street and a man with a round face and large lips stepped out. This must be Jacob Golos. There was nothing special about Golos's appearance. He looked totally unremarkable. This was by design. According to former chief of disguise of the CIA, Jonna Mendez, spies try to be the man or woman that, quote, gets on the elevator and then gets off, and nobody knew they were there. Golos approached Julius and stopped a few feet away. What happened next is called a recognition signal. According to the International Spy Museum, this is a simple phrase, word, or object that is used to identify yourself as an ally agent. Now, we don't know the exact signal used for this conversation, but ex-Soviet spy Klaus Fuchs described some KGB tactics after the Cold War. As a spy, he was instructed to wear gloves but carry a second pair, or to hold a tennis ball as he walked down the street. Now, the goal of these recognition signals is to be subtle enough to seem normal but overt enough to identify your ally. Once the recognition was confirmed, Golos gave Julius a small slip of paper with a telephone number. In perfect English, Golos told Julius to call him when he needed to talk. Julius nodded. Golos got back into his car and left. The whole meeting lasted no more than about 30 seconds, but it was the most important 30 seconds of Julius Rosenberg's life. Coming up, we'll hear how the FBI began to tighten a noose around the Rosenberg's life. Now back to the story. In the summer of 1942, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were living their dream. They had made contact with a bona fide NKVD agent, and their stockpile of government documents was slowly making it to Russia. The first time Julius called the phone number Jacob Golos had given him, he realized that it wasn't his personal number. It was actually the number of another spy he controlled, Elizabeth Bentley. Elizabeth was a librarian at the Italian Library of Information in New York City. During the 1940s, the Italian Library of Information was a branch of Italian intelligence that attempted to disperse fascist propaganda into the United States. As a Soviet agent, Elizabeth was entrusted with reporting Italy's covert operations to the USSR through Jacob Golos. This was the complicated web that Julius and Ethel descended into during their summer of 1942. Armed with Elizabeth's home phone number, Julius set up a series of covert meetings with Golos across New York City. In all clandestine documents and phone calls, Julius would be referred to as Antenna. 
Code names are assigned through a rather unceremonious process. Typically, a new spy is given an alphabetical list of 10 random words, and they are able to choose which one they prefer. In some cases, specific names are chosen for an agent or mission, but the majority of spies are named through random words. By September 1942, less than six months after Julius's first contact with the Soviet Union, Golos recommended Julius for, quote, use on the technical line, or the XY line. This was an elite collection of covert agents around the globe that supplied the USSR with technical intelligence. Ethel was never given a code name or officially registered as a spy, but most historians believe she served as Julius's record keeper, typing up documents on that same Remington typewriter she'd been using for years. As the Rosenbergs continued to steal information about radar and sonar systems, they drew the eyes of other KGB agents further up the Soviet totem pole, not the least of which was Semyon Semyonov, codename Twain. Semyonov was born in Odessa, in modern-day Ukraine, and served as a KGB agent who managed to work his way into the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in 1938. As a student, he learned about the cutting-edge military technologies in America and relayed those lectures back to the Soviet Union. But with Julius's small band of engineers, he saw the next step in espionage. After their first meeting in the winter of 1942, Semyonov was very vocal in his praise of Julius. He wrote to Russia, quote, Antenna is a skilled agent. He commands authority with a group which he is successfully handling. He is enthusiastic about his work and wants to do as much as possible. But Semyonov saw room for improvement. He also wrote, quote, Antenna sometimes rushes and doesn't think through certain aspects well enough. Our operative must carefully check and monitor his work and give him detailed instructions. Antenna is absolutely unripe in matters of working as an agent. Our demands regarding the type of materials we acquire and elementary rules of conspiratia. Conspiratia referred to the code of Soviet espionage. Part of the doctrine included the Moscow Rules, ten laws to live by as a Russian spy. According to the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., the Moscow Rules were as follows. 1. Assume nothing. 2. Never go against your gut. 3. Everyone is potentially under opposition control. 4. Do not look back. You are never completely alone. 5. Go with the flow, blend in. Six, vary your pattern and stay within your cover. Seven, lull them into a sense of complacency. Eight, do not harass the opposition. Nine, pick the time and place for action. Ten, keep your options open. Throughout the next year and a half until 1944, Semyonov drilled this ideology into the minds of the six current members of the Rosenberg Network. He also helped streamline their information-gathering process by supplying them with a few top-of-the-line Leica cameras to snap photos of sensitive documents. Soon, Julius was carrying his camera everywhere, 
ready to steal secrets at a moment's notice. But working with a prominent agent like Semyonov also brought more danger for the Rosenbergs. In 1944, Semyonov's status drew the eyes of an American codebreaker named Jean Grabiel. As a cryptanalyst and mathematician, Jean had spent her life in the pursuit of breaking codes. She was now the head of a U.S. government agency that President Franklin D. Roosevelt didn't even know existed, the Venona Project. They were a collection of America's greatest problem solvers. Today, she was trying to break a line of coordinates they had acquired from a clandestine agent in Moscow. That was until she received the mail that morning. Included in her normal office memos was a letter addressed to Mr. Goover. Although completely anonymous, the letter identified 11 Soviet intelligence officers that stretched from Canada to Mexico. Among the names was film producer Boris Moras, American activist Earl Browder, and Julius's handler, Semyon Semyonov. The letter said, quote, Semenov works in Amtord Trading Corporation, is robbing the whole of the war industry in America. Semenov has his agents in all the industrial towns of the USA, in all aviation and chemical war factories, and in big industries. He works very brazenly and roughly. It would be very easy to follow him up and catch him red-handed." It is important to note here that Semenov is a transliteration of Semyonov. Grabiel stood up from her desk. She immediately ordered a test on the letter. Later that day, the ink proved that it had been written in Russia. Either a Soviet agent was defecting, or it was a very elaborate forgery. Throughout 1943, the FBI increased its surveillance on the 11 officers named in the letter, including Semyonov. They didn't have any proof that the suspects were agents, but if the 11 so much as thought about contacting Russia, the FBI would be ready to pounce. With the Americans stalking Semyonov, every time the Rosenbergs made contact with Semyonov, they were risking their lives and the life of their newborn son, Michael, who was born in March 1943. The new addition to the family only strengthened Julius and Ethel's devotion to espionage. They wouldn't let their child grow up in a decaying capitalist world. Their work would secure his future. The danger of their hidden life didn't truly become clear to Ethel until one night in late March 1943. Ethel stepped out of a grocery store with supplies for baby Michael and turned down the street toward the subway station. She passed a man in a simple black suit. Nothing remarkable to see. In fact, he was almost too unremarkable. Ethel hurried the half block to the station and sat down. She saw the same man in the black suit waiting across the street. Maybe he was just heading the same way. Even if he was an FBI agent, Ethel knew the best thing she could do was act normal. If she ran now, it would be as good as a confession. She sat where she was and began to file her nails. When the train arrived, the man in the suit stepped onto the platform. His eyes flashed to Ethel. Ethel boarded first. The man followed after. He didn't look at her directly, 
it was impossible to tell whether he was watching her. Right when the doors were about to close, Ethel stepped off the train as innocently as possible. The man remained on board. Ethel watched the train rumble to life and disappear into the darkness. Ethel went home and told Julius about the encounter, but he had worse news. Their handler, Semyonov, had been compromised. Semyonov had found out about the letter that landed on Jean Grabiel's desk, and he told Julius he would be flying back to Moscow immediately. The Rosenbergs were left up in the air. By the end of April 1943, a second KGB handler was assigned to the Rosenbergs, Alexander Feklasov. Feklasov was the best of the best. Born in Moscow, he attended espionage school, where he spent a year studying America and the UK. Feklasov also took practical subjects, which taught him how to get away from a follower, how to recruit new agents, and how to use audio transmitters for coded messages. With Feklasov to guide them, the Rosenberg network started to function like a real spy ring. Their team now included Julius Rosenberg, his former classmate William Pearl, Morton Sobel, Russell McNutt, and Joel Barr. Julius's fellow Army Signal Corps workers Alfred Sarant and Nathan Sussman, and Julius's old friends Michael and Ann Sidorovich. Together, they gathered 20,000 technical documents plus another 12,000 pages of the complete design manual for the first U.S. jet fighter, the P-80 Shooting Star. Then, in 1944, rumors arose of a project more secret, more crucial, and more dangerous than anything else the American military had ever undertaken. The atomic bomb. To this day, the atomic bomb remains the most destructive weapon to ever exist. For context, a common base measurement for the explosive force of an atomic bomb is 1,000 tons of TNT, or one kiloton. The first nuclear test ever resulted in a 22 kiloton blast. Before the first bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, Japan on August 6, 1945, no one outside of the shadowy Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico had any idea what kind of demolition the weapons were capable of. But the Soviets certainly wanted to find out. And the Rosenbergs already knew someone working at the Los Alamos Laboratory, Ethel's younger brother, David Greenglass. David was a 22-year-old army machinist, and like his sister, a devoted communist. According to Feklasov, Julius described him as, quote, a 100% reliable guy devoted to our cause and would never fail us, end quote. In August 1944, by a sheer stroke of fate, he'd been assigned to Los Alamos, where engineers from the top-secret Manhattan Project were developing the atomic bomb. In October 1944, Julius recruited David's wife, Ruth, who lived in New York, and as Julius had guessed, was fully on board with espionage. Once Ruth was cleared as an agent by their Soviet handlers, she wrote to David in New Mexico. On November 4, 1944, David sent back his response. 
quote, My darling, I most certainly will be glad to be part of the community project that Julius and his friends have in mind. Count me in, dear, or should I say it has my vote? Coming up, America's most infamous atomic spy mission begins. Now back to the story. In November 1944, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg recruited a source directly inside the Manhattan Project's secretive laboratory, Ethel's brother, David Greenglass. His task was to steal any documents he could get his hands on and bring them back to the Rosenbergs in New York. If he succeeded, the Soviet Union would be a step closer to crafting their own atomic bomb before the U.S. got a chance to finish theirs. David's assignment at the Los Alamos National Laboratory gave him access to secrets few other spies could ever lay eyes on. But Julius's work for the Army Signal Corps in New York granted him priceless opportunities as well. In December 1944, Julius was sent to inspect a manufacturing facility called Emerson Radio and Phonograph Factory. There, he came face to face with one of America's most closely guarded inventions, the proximity fuse. This was a fuse that automatically detonates when it reaches a certain distance from its target. Compared to a traditional contact fuse that detonates upon hitting the ground, a proximity fuse can detonate in midair and spray shrapnel over a radius of miles, resulting in a blast that's five to ten times as deadly. Proximity fuses were developed by British and American technicians early in World War II, but were not shared with Soviet weapons manufacturers. Though their interests in ending the war were aligned, the U.S. didn't want the Soviets to have their hands on the technology after the war was over and their tenuous alliance was dissolved. The Soviet Union understood the concept behind the proximity fuse, but they'd never seen one up close. That is, until Julius Rosenberg handed them one. The fuse was nothing more than a small radio transmitter and receiver. Julius was alone in the room. He simply grabbed one and smuggled it out of the building. On the morning of Christmas Eve, 1944, Julius sat down at a diner in Manhattan. He kept a small gift-wrapped box on the seat next to him. Alexander Feklasov arrived and sat down across the booth. He had a few gifts of his own for Julius. Julius opened them right away. A nice stainless steel watch a crocodile skin purse for Ethel, and a teddy bear for baby Michael. Then, Julius slid his gift across the table. Feklasov eyed it. He knew it would be better not to open it until later. When Feklasov got back to the Russian consulate, he tore the wrapping paper off the box and found the Christmas present of a lifetime, a functional proximity fuse. While the Soviets got to work reverse engineering the fuse, Julius touched base with his brother-in-law, David Greenglass. David was back in New York for the holidays, and he'd brought a piece of valuable information with him, a sketch of the lens mold used in making the atomic bomb. As David passed Julius the sketch, he expressed his fears about the mission. If anyone found out what he was doing, 
he might be facing the death penalty for treason. Julius and Ethel assured him that would never happen. Julius took a jello box and cut it in half in a jigsaw pattern. He told David he would send an anonymous agent to his home in New Mexico that June. David would have half the jello box and the agent would have the other half. That was the recognition symbol. Once the agent arrived, David was to hand over any and all documents he could acquire about the atomic bomb. It would all be over in an afternoon if David kept his promise. David eyed his sister across the room. She looked so confident he couldn't help but trust her. David nodded and grabbed half of the jello box. He was all in. Over the next month, David wrote notes about the various metal pieces that he was working on in the laboratory. The security around the lab was tight enough that he couldn't steal any documents directly, but loose enough that confidential diagrams and memos were left lying out in plain sight. David memorized whatever he could, went home, and made sketches of everything he'd seen. But just a month later, the entire Rosenberg operation fell apart in the blink of an eye. In February 1945, FBI agents confiscated a series of Communist Party petitions from 1939. Among the list of signatures were Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Julius was immediately terminated from the Army Signal Corps. In a matter of hours, his primary source of information was gone. By the end of the month, Julius was also discharged from his duties by Moscow. He was now more of a liability than an asset. Feklasov tried to save Julius and Ethel from dismissal with a letter to Russian intelligence. He wrote, quote, In Julius, we have a loyal man whom we can trust completely, a man who, in his practical work over the course of several years, has shown how strong his desire is to help our country. But it wasn't enough. The Rosenberg network was disbanded, and Julius's careers, as an engineer and as a spy, were over. The only way to win back favor with Russia was to make sure David Greenglass's mission was a success. In the spring of 1945, Julius asked Feklasov to continue on with their plan and send an agent down to collect the information from David. Feklasov relayed the message to another agent known as Anatoly Yakovlev, real name Anatoly Yatskov, who in turn passed it on to an agent named Harry Gold. Yakovlev delivered half of the jello box and a single piece of paper to Harry Gold's home address. On the paper, there were three things. The name Greenglass, the Greenglass home address in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and the words, recognition signal, I come from Julius. On June 2, 1945, Harry Gold arrived in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He knocked on David's door, but no one was home. This was a major warning flag. The family should have been prepared to make contact with him. Harry checked into a local Hilton hotel under his own name. Although he didn't realize it, this was a major mistake. 
he'd left a paper trail leading directly to David. Harry spent the sleepless night awake in his bedroom, counting down the minutes until morning. When the sun rose on June 3, 1945, Harry returned to the green glass home and once again knocked on the door. David answered. Harry immediately delivered the signal. I come from Julius. The two strangers stared at each other for a moment. David stepped back and Harry stepped inside. Cautiously, Harry took out the jello box and showed the jagged edge. David walked further into the house and came back with his piece of the jello box. It fit like a glove. David gave Harry two more drawings of devices he'd seen at the laboratory, along with some written records. In return, Harry gave David an envelope with $500 and thanks for his work. After a four-hour flight, Harry was once again back in New York. He took a taxi to the home of his handler, Anatoly Yakovlev. Soon, the documents were in Moscow, and Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were back on the hook. Russia had another task for them. So far, all the Soviet efforts to reverse-engineer the proximity fuse had failed. They had a working example from Julius, but they couldn't figure out how to replicate it. They needed something else. Instructions, or a diagram, or a list of materials. Then they'd be on track to build their own atomic bomb. In September 1945, David Greenglass once again returned to New York City with as much information as he could gather about the proximity fuse. Sitting in the Rosenberg's apartment, he drew up a diagram of a complex series of circles. He passed along 12 pages of written notes, including a list of materials. Ethel immediately typed them up on her old Remington typewriter and prepared them for Moscow. With these notes, the Soviet atomic bomb was nearly complete. But the Rosenbergs didn't hear back from Soviet intelligence. After weeks, they didn't receive any response at all. Desperate for some kind of information, Julius called the phone number he'd once been given by his first handler, Jacob Golos. His intermediary, Elizabeth Bentley, answered the phone. Julius informed her that he had important information and that Golos should talk with him immediately. She told him she would relay the message, then hung up. But once again, they were greeted with radio silence. It was unusual for communication to take this long. The Rosenbergs weren't aware of it, but there was a good reason for the silence. They had been compromised. One of their closest associates was currently sitting in an FBI office writing down 107 pages of testimony about the Rosenberg spy ring. Julius and Ethel had agreed to risk their freedom for the sake of communism, but they may not have understood that they were also risking their lives. In part two, we'll explore the consequences of the Rosenberg's mission for the nuclear arms race. 
and for American culture. Thank you for listening to Espionage. We'll be back Friday with a new episode. For more information on the Rosenbergs, we found Spies, The Rise and Fall of the KGB in America by John Earl Haynes, Harvey Clare, Alexander Vasiliev, and The Rosenberg File, A Search for the Truth by Joyce Milton and Ronald Radosh, especially helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Espionage, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll be back next week with another deep dive into the world of clandestine operation. Espionage was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire. Espionage is written by Michael Herman. I'm Carter Roy. If you enjoyed this episode, head over to Spotify, where you can listen to part two of the story. Spotify is the only place to find all future episodes, as well as the entire espionage catalog. We've covered such subjects as British agent Mari Shilver, American General Benedict Arnold, and many others. New episodes premiere every Friday, only on Spotify.